Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. The Economist. In London, this is The Economist, and you're listening to Babbage, a weekly conversation on science and technology. I'm Kenneth Kukier, senior editor and host of Babbage. On today's show, we're looking at nothing less than the future of computing. And because computing is the bedrock of modern society, we're looking at the future of human civilization. Specifically, we're looking at developments in artificial intelligence and what the end of Moore's Law means for business and consumers. With me to discuss these topics are Tim Cross, our science correspondent. Hello, Tim. Hi, Ken. And Tom Stanage, our deputy editor. Hello, Tom. Hello, Ken. Hello. So this week, the AI company, Google DeepMinds, is competing against a champion of Go, a game that is far more complicated to win at than chess. What is happening and what is the significance? Tim. So yes, as you say, DeepMind is an artificial intelligence startup. Uh, it's based in London. It was bought by Google a few years ago for $400 million. And they're staging an exhibition match out in South Korea. And all the listeners may remember back in the 1990s, Gary Kasparov famously played against a chess-playing computer built by IBM called Deep Blue. And that was seen, Deep Blue won uh, eventually, and that was seen as a, a real milestone in AI development. This is sort of the same thing. Go is, it's not so well known in the West, but in East Asia, it's... Uh, a very popular, very difficult, very cerebral board game. And for a long time, it's been a bit of a holy grail of AI research because the game is so sort of big and so complicated, it's very difficult for computers to get to grips with it. So DeepMind has been working on and developing a technology called Deep Learning, which we've talked about before on Babbage. And one of the nice things about Deep Learning is it's applicable to all kinds of things. So they've taken this technology, they've applied it to this game of Go and produced what seems to be by far the strongest computer Go program ever written. Great. So how's it doing? Well, so this morning we got the result of the very first match. So they're playing five games. And today, which is Wednesday, for people who are listening from the future, AlphaGo, which is the name of the program, it won its first match. It beat its opponent, who's a chap called Lee Sedol, who's a very, very strong uh, Go player, widely regarded as one of the best in the last 10 years. And he eventually resigned and conceded defeat to the computer. That's really interesting because, of course, in the early matches against Kasparov and Deep Blue, Kasparov resigned as well. Tom? I would uh, draw a contrast, I think, between the way Deep Blue worked and the way Alpha go work. Deep Blue beat Kasparov essentially by applying brute force computing. Um, it was AI sort of, but essentially um, IBM built a bunch of silicon chips that were really, really good at considering chessboards and just filled a computer with them. And guess what? The more they put in, the better it was at playing chess. And eventually it was good enough to beat Gary Kasparov. What's happened with AlphaGo is more interesting because Go is a lot more complicated than chess. There are more possible moves than there are particles in the universe. So you can't just throw processing power at the problem. Instead, you have to be much smarter. And that's why AlphaGo is using this deep learning AI technique. In fact, it's got two separate neural networks inside the AlphaGo system. Uh, and they're sort of joined together with other modules that use different AI techniques. And the idea is that it's sort of modelled on the different modules of the brain, uh, which do different functions. And so that's why they've been able to 
to achieve this really quite striking result. I mean, as recently as last year, people were saying it was going to be at least another decade before a computer would beat, you know, the world's best players in Go. And it's essentially because of smarter programming and not just because of more brute force computing power. Is there a way to simplify how deep learning is applied, how it actually works in terms of figuring out how to win at Go? Well, so as the name suggests, deep learning, it's a way of getting computers to learn from their experience. And what that sort of boils down to is you feed them vast mountains of data, they apply lots of clever statistics to it. And by doing that, they can extract sort of rules and general features, things that are maybe hard to program explicitly into them. And that turns out to be perfect for Go because it's a very different game from chess. And one of the biggest difficulties in in teaching a computer to play is having it work out how well it's doing. Uh, And in chess, there's sort of built-in structure that that can help you with that. So the pieces have different values. You know, queens are worth more than knights and knights are worth more than pawns and so on. That's not really true in Go. And if you talk to professional Go players, a lot of the time they'll say they made a move because it felt right or because that was what their intuition was telling them to do. And deep learning, you could say, is a way of getting computers to develop that kind of intuition for themselves. So in the case of Go, in the case of AlphaGo, um, there are actually two different kinds of deep learning applied. And one of the programs suggests moves, it looks at the board and suggests which moves might be good, and it bases that on millions of games that it's seen humans play. The second one then games each of those out a few moves down the road, compares the resulting board states that it's seen before, and tries to work out which of those look most like the board states that in the past have led to victory. And the really interesting twist on this is that AlphaGo has got better since it played a very strong European player last year um, and and beat him too. Uh, it has since played 30 million games against itself and that has enabled it to learn what winning moves look like and so on. So it's a really interesting example of where the uh, the data to train the neural net comes actually from playing games, which is one of the reasons that AI researchers like games so much because you don't need to go out into the world and find the data. You can actually generate the data in the game world. And so actually that harkens back to the origin of machine learning when Arthur Samuel of IBM played checkers and, of course, wrote a mini-maxi algorithm to actually win at checkers by having the computer play itself again and again and again and generate more data. So this has been a hard problem. It's now become a little bit easier, but we're still just playing games. Where do you think that DeepMind is going to take deep learning next? Well, so if you actually ask DeepMind about this, which Tom and I did a couple of weeks ago, you get sort of two answers. And one is they were bought by Google, and Google's a profit-making company. It wants to apply this technology to what it does. So Google uses this kind of AI to do things like serve appropriate ads to you, to improve the quality of its search results, to do things like filter pornography from your image searches. But when you talk to Demis Hassabis, who's one of DeepMind's founders, he talks about something else, and he says that this is one of the key steps on the road towards his ultimate goal, which is to build something called an artificial general intelligence. A program like Deep Blue, IBM's chess computer, all that does is is play chess. Deep learning algorithms are broader, but they still lack a whole bunch of mental tools that humans take for granted. And the ultimate goal is to build something that has the sort of fluid and general intelligence that humans have. And for Hasabis, this is precisely just one step on the road towards that ultimate goal. So this brings us to the more general question of where the future of computing goes, because Moore's Law's slowing down. We're optimizing the algorithms. We've just talked about AI. But if Moore's Law is slowing down, that has huge ramifications. And Tim, you're writing about that in the latest issue of Technology Quarterly. What's going on? 
I mean, I guess the first thing to say is uh, one should always be a little bit humble because, you know, Moore's Law has a long history of people saying it's about to come to an end, including Gordon Moore himself at least twice. And they've been proved wrong every time. I think this time, though, there is something to it. So Moore's Law is the observation that was first made by Gordon Moore back in 1965, who would go on to found Intel, that the number of components you can cram into an integrated circuit was doubling every 18 months. And he, he later modified that to two years. And it's basically become a self-fulfilling prophecy that the entire computing industry has adopted and thrown huge amounts of money into continuing. And it underlies the massive progress that we've seen over the last 50 years. It's a a fairly rare example of an exponential growth, you know, where each step is as big as all the other steps combined actually happening in in the real world. And when you start to crunch some of the numbers, you can get a feel for, for how big this has been. Okay, so just how dramatic has that progress been? Well, if you look at the first microprocessor, the Intel 4004, which came out in 1971, it had about 2,300 transistors on it, and it could do 0.07 MIPS, which is million instructions per second. If you look at a modern Intel processor like the Skylake, it has about 1.8 billion transistors on it. You could actually fit half a million of its transistors onto every single transistor of the original 4004. That's how much smaller they are. The performance, similarly, is about half a million times greater. It's about 25,000 MIPS. And then the overall sort of possibilities of what you could do with the computers are, are also you know, much greater now as a direct result of this. And we're kind of used to things getting better and better. But what underpins it all is this inexorable shrinking of transistors, which has been going on. And what started to happen in the last couple of years is that the transistors are still getting smaller, but they're no longer getting cheaper and faster, which is what was happening for the previous 50 years. So you can still do it, but you don't get the benefits from the shrinking that you were getting before. And that's why people are sort of looking around and going, okay, where is the progress going to come from in computing if we can't just get it from Moore's law shrinking? And so AI is one answer, but there are also other things that people are looking at and which Tim has been reporting on, uh, which you can use to make your future computers better than your present ones. So let me stop for a moment and simply ask, well, first, why is Moore's law ending? There are two things that can bring it to an end. So one is simply the physics and the engineering. And modern transistors, like the ones Tom was talking about, are really they're tiny machines. You, know, you can measure their dimensions in, in dozens of atoms. And when you get down to that sort of scale, the laws of classical physics, as we generally understand them, don't really work as well. You have to start accounting for all these weird sort of quantum mechanical effects and just the effect of of making the transistors, which are the sort of fundamental components of chips. As they get smaller and smaller, um, it becomes harder and harder to distinguish a one from a zero. You have to start redesigning the transistor in all sorts of clever ways to to keep it working. Um, And that pushes the price up. And you also get more kind of leakage through the bottom of the transistor because it's so small. And so that means that you can't switch it as fast as you might have hoped to be able to. So it's really running into those physical constraints. And then you've also got the sort of capital constraints, which is that every time there's another iteration of Moore's Law, the cost of the factories and the cost of the equipment goes up again. So there's a thing jokingly called Moore's Second law, which is the cost of a chip factory doubles every roughly every four years. When you start to look at how these things are made, they use um, the, the features that they're building, the transistors they're building, um, they build them by uh, using light beams, essentially, to etch features onto silicon. The transistors are much, much smaller than the wavelength of the light that they're cutting these things with. It's really kind of amazing technology. Um, but every time you shrink, it costs more to buy the kit needed to, to produce these things. And 
you know, to a rough estimate, a modern chip factory might cost you five or six billion dollars by the middle of the next decade. That could be up to 16, 17 billion dollars. And that's a huge amount of money, even for, a, for an industry like this. I mean, Intel's annual revenue last year was only something on the order of, of, of 50 billion. And so, you know, if, if the benefits of shrinking them are not what they were, and the price is rising dramatically, you know, both of which are true, then at some point in the not too distant future, these two trends are going to cross over, and it's just not going to be worthwhile carrying on. So, you know, economics is going to kill Moore's law before before physics. Does. And in fact, Intel already says that the rate of doubling has now gone down to every two and a half years. So what else can we do to make up for the fact that we're losing these gains of power on the chip? Actually, in an era where a computer is a standalone device, you know, how fast the chip is, is really important. In an era where computers are part of a great big you know, network of lots of things and half the work uh, is being done in the cloud, it actually is less important than it was. So Uh, The rise of cloud computing is really disguising the impact of Moore's law in a lot of ways. And cloud computing itself allows you to have economies of scale and computing, not at the chip level, but at the data center level. It means you no longer have to specify your computers for the peak performance that you need, you know, once a month when you do something really complicated, because you can just get more power from the cloud. So as computers used by both individuals and companies move into the cloud, that's going to cover a lot of these things up. The other thing is that the way we think about our devices getting better is no longer just performance. You know, my, my smartphone is better than my old smartphone because it has a payment system in it and it has a better camera and it's got better motion sensors and it's got, you know, those are the sorts of things I'm looking at now, not the clock speed. I don't even know what the clock speed in my phone is. Really, computers are going to continue to get better just in, in different ways and um, they don't just need to get better on the on the metric of raw clock speed. Tim? I think I think at the same time, uh, though, you, you do still need and there will still be ways of, of improving that raw performance. The cloud operators are going to want to find ways of squeezing as much performance out of what they have as possible. I mean, one way to look at Moore's Law, it's been great. It's been a wonderful free lunch. It's also sort of been a bit of a straitjacket because there are lots of other ways you can improve computers that just weren't worth looking at back when you could sit back and wait and every two years everything will get twice as good. So people are they're starting to spend money on um, optimising and trying to find better algorithms, better ways to attack problems, which is exactly what AlphaGo has been doing. That's a perfect example of that. IBM are looking at ways to dramatically shrink data centres. They reckon they can get something that's the size of a warehouse now down eventually to something that's the size of a shoebox by stacking chips on top of each other in three dimensions. And this is all inspired by, you know, research on how biological brains are uh, packed. So there are plenty of other ways to keep performance going. I think the main difference will be that Moore's Law was metronomic and the industry put a huge amount of money into making sure that every two years we got another tick. And that, I think, is what will change. So progress won't stop, but it'll become probably harder and a bit less predictable and a bit more difficult in general. That's really interesting. Thank you very much. You can read more about Moore's Law and artificial intelligence in the new Technology Quarterly on the future of computing and in the science section of the issue out this week. That's all for Babbage. Please join the conversation. Tweet us at EconSciTech and on The Economist Facebook page. You've been listening to Babbage. For more news on science and technology, visit Economist.com. In London, this is The Economist. The Economist. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.